Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week we'll be looking at proposals from Christian Porter, the Attorney-General, to treat social media companies as publishers. Uh, Will this punish Silicon Valley lefties running these companies or will it be an Armageddon for conservatism? That's one of the things we'll be talking about today. Then we referee the Westpac Westpac versus Oztrack bout, uh, which may have actually claimed the CEO of Westpac. Try to get to the bottom of that. And then also elder statesman of the Liberal Party and conservatism, John Howard, has said that perhaps the party's over, or at least political parties, are over as social institutions. Uh, We live in an age where people aren't joining, so we'll look at that as well. And then in our regular books and culture segment, we have our panellists have got some rippers today. Uh, We review the documentary, The Rise of Jordan Peterson, screening now. We have a new book on the sorry state of our universities. It's season three of The Crown. And then there's a classic movie which launched the career of Michael Mann. And I don't want to trigger any climate sceptics out there. It's Michael Mann, the director, (laughs) not the guy who came up with the hockey stick. So... It's time now to introduce my panellists. First of all, my co-host from RMIT University, Chris Berg. Good day, Scott. Good to have you. On my right, appropriately, is Andrew Bushnell. Cheers, Scott. Research <laughs> fellow at the IPA. It's a little political always, dig. Always, That's the right, <laughs> always the right <laughs> so, Well, it's, it's, you know, it's okay at the IPA. And, of course, our National Manager of Generation Liberty, Renee Gorman. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you back. Uh, As I mentioned, uh, we have on the podcast before talked about uh, the ACCC's investigation into digital platforms and uh, and now, uh, Chris Berg, there's been a recent intervention from your good self. Well, there has been. Uh, The intervention originally was from uh, the Attorney General Christian Porter. Um, So Attorney General Christian Porter has argued that social media networks, as you said, should be treated as... Um, publishers rather than sort of platforms. We're talking, of course, about networks like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, um, potentially the podcast platforms that we all rely on. Specifically, he's argued that um, they should be legally liable for defamatory comments made on their platforms. So right now, if um, a defamatory comment is made on Twitter, um, the person who made the comment is liable, but the platforms are not. Um, in this model, in the um, Attorney General's proposal, the platforms would also be liable for those comments because they are publishing them. So his argument is that we need to um, uh, resolve an inconsistency between traditional publishers like newspapers and broadcasters and social media networks. Now, as you mentioned, I um, uh, have a piece with Aaron Lane, our colleague in the Sydney Morning Herald um, uh, published on Tuesday, which we argue that this policy is fundamentally confused. It's fundamentally confused about the distinction between digital platforms and traditional publishers like newspapers. Um, and the common law has recognised that difference. Um, uh, and, you know, th- this this may change over time, but the idea that there would be legislation to override that some of the fundamental differences. So, for instance, a fundamental difference between social media and newspapers. Newspapers commission articles. They edit articles. They hopefully fact-check articles. They know who is publishing on their, quote, platform. They, um, they have an editorial voice. Social media has none of these things. Social media doesn't even check if you are a real human and not a robot or doesn't tend to check beforehand. Um, this has a practical effect. So if we, if we insist that um, digital platforms have to take liability for everything that's published on them, they are going to take absolute responsibility 
They are going to delete anything and everything that they could potentially see as the most marginal risk. And the most marginal risk against, you know, their interpretation of what social media, sorry, uh, not social media, their interpretation of what Australia's most left-wing judges think Australia's anti-free speech law could possibly be. And that's why I think finally this could be a devastating policy, particularly for the conservative movement, because it is the conservative movement that has relied most on the new digital platforms, the end of the media gatekeepers or the end around the media gatekeepers, the ability to speak directly to your audience without having to go through Australia's newspaper conglomerates. I think um, if anything, if you could try to think of a policy that would more effectively destroy the conservative movement online, I think you would come up with what the conservative Attorney General Christian Porter has. Andrew, we've been discussing this for a while and we've had a lot of conversations about the ACCC and, um, uh, and Facebook and social media and, and the way we should think about it. What is um, your take? I think, firstly, uh, just as a factual matter, I think that the bill proposes... Um, while it proposes to extend the application of defamation law, it also proposes that the states get together to weaken defamation law by introducing yep. uh, a new protection for uh, media companies um, in the public interest. So I think, there, I think that does need to be understood, that, um, that Porter, I think, understands that extending the scope but leaving it as it currently is is probably not going to lead to the best result, but he thinks that he can build in um, a sufficient protection for those companies. Uh, but I think that the more, the more interesting question around this is um, whether it's incredibly naive uh, to believe that social media companies do not have an editorial position. Now, it seems obvious that they have an editorial position because they curate their feeds uh, algorithmically and with teams of people. They have, they have rooms full of actual physical humans who make human decisions about what goes up on their platforms. And they should, by the way, because the idea that we should be laissez-faire about Facebook live streaming mass murder, I think is ridiculous. I think they should, they should curate this content. But as soon as we admit that, and as soon as we admit that they have the capability, and we know they do. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that something like Twitter doesn't have just one editorial position, although at the top level, it's very clear that it does. It's very clear that it already takes steps to maximise favoured voices and minimise voices it doesn't like. But also in another sense, at a kind of lower level, it has um, millions of editorial positions because it curates your feed personally. And it's doing that deliberately. So the question is whether, uh, and particularly under Australian law as it stands, the question is whether that capability makes them publishers anyway. So this law, I think it's a little bit misleading to think that this law is completely innovative when we know that the common law is trending towards recognising them as publishers anyway, which is what happened in the New South Wales Supreme Court in July with the Vola decision. But isn't, it, I mean, isn't that the entire case? So there's obviously a circumstance... And we'll bring you in a sec, Renee, sorry. Uh, there's obviously a circumstance in which a um, platform that makes no judgments 
um, uh, it increasingly makes more and more judgments and eventually it becomes a newspaper. So there's obviously, there's, there's a point in time in which a, if you're making more and more editorial calls and, and, and so forth that eventually they're, they're a newspaper. But that is for the common law to decide and potentially you might be right. The common law might be moving in that direction. I think that New South Wales case is um, slightly more complicated, but um, uh, the common law might be moving in that direction. Why then do we have the Australian federal government deciding to write a law that is clearly in the interest of one particular segment of the press? Um, uh, it's clearly in the interest of the newspapers that resent the loss of advertising revenue to the digital platforms. Why are we asking the Commonwealth Government to do that? Renee, I might uh, have you answer that real setup of a question there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just Deeply think... unfair of a question. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, they're going about this entirely the wrong way. Um, what we have here is an issue of exactly what... Um, Andrew was saying, uh, there is a level of curation and a level of curation that definitely affects conservative voices over um, left-leaning or centrist voices. But this seems like something that needs a scalpel job just to fix it and we've got a sledgehammer out and we're going to completely mess it up further. Uh, I think something that would help both sides is that a, more transparency about how that curation works from these companies and B, a very clear set of rules and laws defined by these companies about what they take down and why they take it down because we see one of the th biggest issues around censorship on the internet is that the rules aren't clear to anyone and that videos can be demonetized or pages can be taken down and they don't really know why and you also don't know when you're putting something up whether it will be taken down. So an evening across the board of rules so everyone's on an even playing field seems like a much more reasonable way of going about this rather than going into defamation, even though I do believe the part about um, looking into defamation law in Australia is actually a very intelligent point, but I don't think expanding it to social media is going to be a, a good move, especially for conservatives. Yeah, I mean, this this is... And Christian Porter has some, some recent form in this. Um, I mean, he is a... Uh, a classic attorney general who believes in the power of law reform to uh, affect change in, in the way that he would prefer. But um, we saw recently in the case of uh, the foreign interference laws where the uh, very first uh, investigation that we're aware of uh, was not into um, a Confucius Institute or a, a Rus Russian agency or anything. It was Andrew Cooper in the CPAC conference. And um, uh, Christian Porter had the, the the classic response, which was, "Oh, well, that's not what the law was designed to do. I shall have a stern talk to my department." So this is not what it was intended to do, which yeah. is just the saddest thing. Yeah, I think. not what it's intended <laughs> to do. And as a, um, I think it was the uh, U.S. Supreme Court uh, uh, judge who said uh, something along the lines of, uh, "The law is concerned not with what was aimed at, uh, but, but but who was hit." <laughs> and uh, and but here we are again. It's like, oh, I don't worry. Um, uh, I'm doing this uh, pursuant to an issue in competition law, but you needn't worry about its its effect on free speech because that would, you know, that that's not contemplated. That's not what we're trying to do. And and the context is um, is defamation. Uh, well, one of the key contexts is defamation law. And I have no faith in the idea that um, the state and federal governments are going to land on any position anytime soon. Like that should be. 
Uh, I'm not even sure it's a sufficient condition, but it certainly should be a necessary one before you embark on this change. I've just been uh, reading a piece we'll link to um, in the Melbourne Law School uh, magazine about the history of defamation law. We have a tremendously restrictive regime in Australia. Um, we have something like three times as many defamation cases as there are in the UK, uh, which is a larger jurisdiction. Uh, fewer defences. Uh, it's much much more friendly to the plaintiff. Um, and and so to say, well, well, we'll change the law and don't worry, we'll get around to fixing defamation laws in due course. <laughs> we'll, we'll get all the attorney, attorney generals from all of the states to agree. It, it's, um, it's not something I, I can see happening. No, defamation law is a, is a serious problem. And one of the reasons it's a serious problem and one of the reasons it's hard to reform is because so much of the political class rely on using defamation law to buy themselves new swimming pools and to do renovations on their home. It's um, it, the, the history of defamation law in this country is abominable. So even if there was a principled argument for um, applying defamation law to the digital platforms, which I do not think there is, and I just cannot see how that argument functions, I think it would be a fundamental disaster to, to apply this terrible law. Hopefully, if we could get out of this, Potentially, we might be able to get reform to defamation. But, but so you're, you're talking about a legal establishment that has a very long history of uh, expanding the reach of defamation law. And the idea is that we should turn over the development of defamation law to those people. Now, to Renee's point about um, some sort of transparency or clarity around the way social media platforms operate, I think that's a good point, but it also requires positive law. One way or another what this is going to come down to is whether we are willing to have uh, government step in to clarify the situation. Now, The last thing I want ever is to, for government to step in and clarify. No, no, no. See, but this, but this, is, this, is, this is the fundamental naivety. You've just described a legal establishment that has a well-understood path dependency. No, it no, no. So, so the, story about, the story about defamation law is the story of radical reform every couple of years in order to protect not the legal profession, although they obviously get a lot of benefit out of it, but to protect the political class. To, to your point, we have made policy decisions, not no, common no, law decisions. No, no, you're both wrong. You're both wrong. <laughs> the constituency that's building for this, and this is uh, what is actually of extra concern, the constituency that's building that we've been covering is, and you raised it at the start, it's about public interest journalism. So I read this piece from my alma mater, um, Melbourne Law School, just yeah, a couple of degrees there. Thank FYI. you very much. Um, <laughs> you didn't. You go to Oxford or anything. And, and of course, <laughs> oh, I do that. Um, but the point is, what they're interested in fundamentally is the impact of defamation laws on journalism, and they're trying to have. So what they're saying is, we'll have a wretched defamation law, but there'll be carve outs. There'll be defences yeah. no, for I'm public not, I'm, interest I'm not journalism, that, I'm not and that is that, not a fix. I'm not saying that defamation law, as it stands, is is a good thing. I think it should be significantly narrower. And I also don't buy anything that the journalist lobby says about itself because I don't believe that freedom of speech exists for the pursuit of truth. Um, I think it basically it exists because mouthing off is one of the fundamental Makes goods. Great joys of life. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. We want to maximise happiness. It's one of the, the, <laughs> the low-cost joys. Um, that's basically my view of it. But hence podcasts like this one. But I think that... Um, I think that what it comes down to, again, is that there is going to be uh, some 
reason for positive law to be made, even if it is just to establish that social media companies are different from other publishers and to make that clear. Um, I also take issue with the idea that social media uh, has been good for conservatives. I, I do not see this at all. It's been, it's, been very good for, it's been very good for Trump, but he was already famous. Uh, it's not particularly good for conservatives because of the, the, the larger dynamic of what social media represents, which is an opportunity for people to essentially construct a reality within which they, they live um, together, um, completely impervious to reality. Um, and so I think that um, I think to the extent I that to the, to the, to yeah, the extent no. no 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 to the extent that pro progressivism is a, a constructivist fantasy, which is true, right? So to the maximum extent, um, then it is then social media because it aids that is necessarily biased against conservatism, which is a realist project uh, and is about directing people towards something that is true and not letting them cocoon them cocoon themselves in lies. I have Renee. to. <laughs> no, I, I massively, massively disagree because you're taking out one external factor there that um, you're not taking into account, which is that young people are consistently wrapped in a cocoon of leftism when they go everywhere else except social media. So they want any diversity of opinion. They have to go to the internet. And that's the only way that pe I meet young people these days where they've sourced their ideas is the internet. I really am of the belief that Generation Z is going to save us, that Generation Z is the most conservative generation um, since, uh, since before the baby boomers. And there are studies out there that show that to be true. And that is because this is the first generation to not have a centralised source of information, as in they don't read the newspaper, they don't watch the news, they source all their own information independently. There was a recent study in the UK that 53% of people under the age of 19 identify as conservative or centrist. That is the most, like, that is like the highest it has ever been and people only get more conservative with time. And we are seeing a backlash against um, the left on on social media is in we're seeing rises of traditionalism and people saying they're moving away from this kind of hedonism of modern times. And that's being built on, online. Yeah, the, stake, the stakes are... Um, uh, uh, it's a fantastic perspective because uh, for someone of my generation um, who grew up, uh, you know, with where official media essentially curated the opinions for you and it was very hard to get access to alternative opinions, we're a little bit like... Um, you can look at social media and 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 say, well, here's this thing that's that's new and it's opened up, and you can argue about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. But it's it's certainly something that happened. Whereas uh, the generation you're talking about has grown up entirely within that milieu. So what are the imagine the stakes for them in this kind of thing about getting this wrong? If we do regulate social media out of existence, what's left? And it's also, I think, one of the great things about. Um, this generation not having a centralised form of information is they're continuously suspicious of any authority that's trying to control information. Even though you can say that their, their Facebook feed or their social media feed is, you know, curated and they're living in a bubble, social media and the internet are, are tools and they get to choose what to do with is it. Is that a topic of discussion, that, you know, that uh, this, this awareness that it's curated, um, that there might be... a, a uh, editorial slant, if you like, for want of a better word, uh, Twitter, Facebook, other platforms, is that because knowledge is power? I mean, if you understand it, then you can compensate for it. Is this is something that the, 
are they naively accepting their feeds or are they taking active steps to manage it? I would say that most young people are aware that their feeds are curated, but you also got to remember that they're curated to the things that you've already been searching. So it's not like they're naturally curated to the left. Um, if you've been searching Milton Friedman, you'll get a think tank related to him coming up on your feed. Their interest is to keep you on the platform so they can yeah. sell ads. I mean, that, that, that's... Yeah. I don't know. Twitter, Twitter, Twitter definitely gives you a little bit of uh, spice. Like, it'll, it'll show Twitter. up... Twitter. On, on, on mine, it'll, it'll, it'll just put into my feed like blue drip morons. Twitter's, Twitter's um, newsfeed is insane. I mean, the way... <laughs> and and, and uh, the idea that it is deliberately curated is a wildly overstating the competence of Twitter's algorithm designers. <laughs> just... <laughs> you do. I no, no, do not want to read things that happened twelve hours ago. No, but the, I mean the algorithm itself <laughs> disproves the idea of neutrality. But I think that there is a question here about whether it makes it makes the right worse uh, social media. Um, and, I, and and basically that's because the 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 true right, if you like, is not something that has this uh, this sceptical empiricist disposition that our society is set up to cultivate in people. Um, and so the, the, idea that, the idea that you could ever have something that would actually amount to conservatism in practice when everyone is uh, encouraged by every single institution in our society to individuate themselves, to, to be sceptical of everything that they're ever told, to tr and, and, then, and then the flip side of that is to trust untrustworthy sources, which is what the internet is full of. I mean, the, a, a diversity of errors is still error, and that is... What that that's essentially what the internet but, has but cultivated. But you're, but it's a you're false not dichotomy. a real conservative. It's, it's a false, so it's like a false dichotomy because the um, you, your choice is this, right? Your choice is the left liberal media of the 20th century with a monopoly, or the left liberal media of the 21st century plus a um, end around the gatekeepers. Now we can use this as we see fit, and we should we as in conservative liberals libertarians should be as aggressively competitive in the market as we can and that's why we run things like podcasts that's why the ipa is interested in you know we're sitting in this giant beautiful studio that's specifically designed to use these technologies and use these platforms in the interest of the vision of the good world that that we that we share i also think um, that you're letting the perfect be the enemy of the good as in what, what do you advise young people to do as in uh, the internet has been such a good source for information and ideas which, you know, the media and their schooling is not no, providing? I would, I would argue that my position is the realistic one because we already have in the law uh, as, a, as a matter of positive construction a whole lot of uh, barriers to what you would consider to be a, a pure freedom of speech. Leaving those in place... Uh, which is what which is what's going to happen, and insisting that the right alone is unable to use positive law to get what it wants, basically just rigs the game in favour of political change in a leftward direction forever. Uh, and I think that is the that is the fundamental decision that the right has to make, and that's what the last three years has really been about, which is about whether we can in fact change the direction of our countries or whether the idea is that we are stuck on this left-wing idea of progress forever and that the law will only ever tilt against us. And I, I, I think that is the, that's the dilemma and that's why the, the truth in postmodernism is that 
very often an institution that claims to be neutral is not. And buying into the idea that it is neutral is to lose. That's a terrific note to end that session <laughs> on. Uh, no, that's a, that's a very neat summation and uh, much to think about there um, because we will be returning to this and, um, yeah, the truth in postmodernism. That's um, yeah, uh, no, it's not, a, not a phrase a you expect to hear. It's almost a paradox. Yeah, um. not, 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 <laughs> not something, yeah, that's right, innately. Um, uh, much more prosaically, we've seen uh, yet another... Uh, meltdown in the corporate sector this time. It is uh, Westpac that's under the gun. Uh, it's been targeted by the regulator Austrac for uh, allegedly not doing enough about uh, money laundering and uh, dealings with nefarious customers. Uh, Chris Berg, what's that's going right, on? Scott. So Austrac alleges that Westpac has contravened the Anti Money Laundering and Counterterrorism Financing Act um, over 23 million times. Um, uh, which involves just, it. Just, just, 20, just, just 23 minutes. It's the lazy 23, 23 <laughs> <laughs> um, Look, if it was 25, I'd be concerned. Um, <laughs> they, they, in Austrac's view, um, uh, they have failed to appropriately assess and monitor ongoing money laundering and terrorism finance risk uh, um, involving money travelling in and out of Australia. Um, uh, the, uh, find, uh, the amount of money, they say, involves about $11 billion. The real headline story, though, is that some of the um, uh, transactions they're looking at were um, related to child exploitation risks. Um, they're looking very closely at apparently 12 customers, two of which, or in fact, one of which was um, a, a child sex offender and um, appears to have continued to use um, their Westpac bank account or, or some um, Westpac product to continue to um, uh, pursue child sex offences or something along those lines, of course. It's very hazy right now because it's ongoing uh, legal investigation at the moment. Now, of course, for the last couple of days, the press has been gunning for the CEO, Brian Hartz's um, head. Brian Hartzer was quoted in – we're recording this on Tuesday. He was recorded in the paper in the morning saying, well, at least it's not Enron or Lehman Brothers. We'll be able to ride this out. Oh. An hour after I read that, he was out, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is just not not a great thing. Um, uh, so, so it's Renee, a, bit, a bit like when the football coach uh, uh, has the full confidence of the board. <laughs> so this is, this is um, uh, bringing out all the um, big guns in the financial press, and, of course, this is taking the um, Australian business community by storm. It's the scandal of the day, Renee. What? How? How do you think about this? Um, uh, the the moral obligation of Westpac to um, surveil its customers like that. I think I more interpreted as the shift of um, of morals that we're seeing brought along by work capitalism. As in, if you focus on these shallow surface issues and you can present yourself as being virtuous that gives you an easy pass to get by day by day but deep deep underneath that there is going to be lurking some serious issues that you haven't actually looked at which actually are much more morally um so we should sorry sorry to bump in we should explain that so uh, john roscombe had a piece in the australian financial review on friday where he pointed out that um, Westpac has spent the last decade or so really parading itself as the ultimate in woke capitalism. It is a moral beacon of the Australian financial community. And um, in amongst having the moral beaconness, it's been doing this. I'll quote John. Um, if you're a company like Westpac that parades its progressive social agenda credentials at every opportunity, you better make sure you're not accused of turning a blind eye and facilitating the funding of some of the most evil crimes 
imaginable. Um, uh, Andrew, is that is that a fair cop? Uh, I, I just on this, I, I just I'm not sure that that what I, what I would say about this is that this is another tremendous embarrassment for Australia's banking sector and for everyone who wanted to a believe... A sector that really can't take too yeah, many more embarrassments. Um, for, and it's an embarrassment <laughs> for everyone who is inclined to ordinarily to defend them. Um, and what I what I took from this was that... Um, was that basically it, it, can't, it, it, it can't go on like this, that... Um, you know, you you defend them and defend them, and then and and they basically continue to embarrass everyone. I think the arguably the problem is that they've basically got a, a cartel. So to make the the free market point is that they're a little bit insulated from competition, and so that they feel free to go off on various follies. Um, that there's not a lot of uh, scrutiny of their various practices, whether it's you know, actually managing their business or whether it's some of the more decorative things that they do, they're not actually exposed to a significant amount of pressure. Um, but I, I mean, for me, the solution to this is that, I mean, on the woke capital bit, I mean, we need some basically right-wing shareholder activism. My view is, this is an empirical question, but the proof doesn't exist as far as I know. My view is that there's absolutely no evidence anywhere ever that's ever been done, even any market research that suggests that this social justice stuff is profitable. So first, I would like them to produce some evidence to that effect. Um, but yeah, I think it would be good for their shareholders and for the rest of us if they would get back to their core function so that it wasn't quite so embarrassing for the entire country when it turns out that they really are as bad as our opponents say. But I, 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 I agree with that as a general principle, though. I would... I do feel, though, that in this particular case, um, there's a difference between the outrage that was in the community during the Banking Royal Commission about the things that banks had actually done to customers or insurance companies had done um, uh, to customers, um, you know, uh, charging dead people for insurance companies or um, uh, supposedly uh, uh, calling in loans that actually could have been serviced, you know, the traditional sort of things that banks get get bashed for. I. What I observe in this Westpac case is an assumption of outrage, of confected outrage. I think this is exactly the sort of outrage that insiders feel. I mean, Oztrack, this is not something that individual community members um, actually deal with. Um, it is not customers being ripped off. Um, it is not the board signing off on nefarious practices. It is a failure of compliance. And as we know, there are already 80,000 different items uh, that require compliance um, in financial services, 10,000 bits of legislation, 10,000 bits of uh, regulation, and another 60,000 items in soft law. So a failure of compliance is not, is not always a moral failure. Yeah. Isn't this how they like it, though? I yeah, mean, okay. the, the banks. But, but so that's my point. The, so, so, yeah. so it becomes a... Sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah but, but also then by playing that game... Um, uh, you then have these morality plays being um, being run where there, there are literally so-called investor analysts who are supposedly there to talk about the share price and examine the the value of companies and talk about how are they creating values who are literally saying things like, oh, yeah, yeah, look, you know, Hearts is going to have to go. It's the only way this is going to be no, solved. So they're not interested in whether the CEO was actually deficient in his responsibilities or whether there was a moral failure. It's just like, 
oh, well, you know, the pack's baying. They you, want an iconic head on the We better throw the CEO but, under the bus. So, so it's, it's ridiculous. Andrew's made a really interesting point because um, – and I want to tackle anti-money laundering laws specifically because the anti-money laundering counter-terrorism financing framework is one of the extremely large bureaucratic regulatory regimes that we impose on, um, on the banks that in part makes them – less competitive. And one of the reasons that I say this is just doing some of the research on this for the podcast this morning, you come across the um, investigations that the government is making about whether to impose these same rules on lawyers and accountants and every other affiliated um, profession as well. And of course, guess what? The banks would really like that <laughs> because it's an incredibly burdensome, it's, it, it is a classic example of of um, red tape because what the government has done with these laws is, is handing off the enforcement of its own laws against bad things. Obviously, um, these, are, these are reprehensible crimes, but it's handing off the enforcement and prevention of those crimes to um, uh, to businesses through regulation. And specifically I to certain employees within those businesses. So it increases the cost of hiring people for these positions because yeah. the law increasingly holds individual persons criminally liable for um, certain things. And, and in fact, there is a, um, there's an inquiry in early next year, I can't remember who's running it, um, into corporate criminal liability. Mm. I, got the, I got the email asking for a, a submission. <laughs> um, uh, and... Well, Chris, nice you, you might you might <laughs> recall, Chris, the, the red tape book that you and Darcy Allen put together. I had a chapter about corporate uh, uh, criminal liability in that. And I think, but to, to get back to the point, I mean, I, I think that um, the, the, the reason that's an issue is that, um, as you say, the more that the the more that the law attaches criminal liability um, or even in just individual liability to people within these companies, and in particular within banks, and this topic. Um, what it's actually doing is <laughs> outsourcing policing as well yeah. to mm -hmm. the company, and and we know there was a um, was a Deloitte or KPMG. I'll, I'll try and find it for the show notes, but there was a, a study a few years ago that said that um, one in six Australian jobs is in compliance, <laughs> uh, whether whether public or private compliance. So I, I think that there is a point, but again, I, I think you know I'm not I'm not opposed to to trying to make banks not funnel money to um, No, but they're not funneling the money. To, be, to clarify, they're not they are accused of being insufficiently we, surveilling yeah. their customers. And this is, this is the problem, sorry, to, get, to go back, that there is a kind of constructive injury part of this where our criminal liability within a company is actually determined by whether your internal governance standards were reasonable or not. Um, and so it's not actually a direct... It's, it's, it's not a direct governance issue, it's a, it's a structural issue and then they, they determine whether um, your standards meet their standards um, and that, of course, creates, again, this compliance burden. But Going I, back I to Chris's point, I find it very difficult to feel sorry for the banks in this circumstance. No, I'm not suggesting that um, we feel... Especially because... Shed a tear for the banks. I shed a tear for the banks <laughs> who have... Um, a, a, consistently protected by government regulation and consistently lobby for more regulation and, oh, no, this particular bit of um, legislation and regulation is hurting us. They're realising that it's a double-edged sword. If they are going to be at all um, uh, 
you know, if I'm going to feel sorry for them at all, then they have to go out and be winning to lower regulation at all no, points. I, that would also help in, our competitors. Fact, and also, if you're going to hold yourself up as a moral arbiter and, and mm. try and, and, and virtue signal to the rest of the society and look how woke we are, look how wonderful we are, I think this is uh, the perfect kind of it's not medicine. A, it's not actually a protection, is it? I mean, yeah. th- th- there is an assumption. I mean, in... in um, in corporate reputation studies, they talk about the um, uh, the sword and the shield um, uh, that you build your reputation through uh, through woke various you know virtue signalling measures. Um, it buffs your it's reputation. It's your social license, and that and that provides a shield um, for occasions like this. I mean, one of the questions, Renee, is does it really? Does, does it actually protect you from being accused of something like this? No, I don't think it does because it it um, makes you. It's not. It's because of the, the particular virtue signaling that they do, which is kind of um, we're more woke than you, we are better than you. It's, it's, it's a patronising kind of morality. And also I would say this is a problem with the standards of the left these days. It used to actually be really difficult to make the left happy with big corporations. You know, you had to have better conditions for workers, you had to actually do uh, systematic change and that's how you would get the left to be happy with you. Now you just have to go, oh, we've got a diversity yeah. officer. But isn't, that because it's more su- isn't it because it's more subtle? Because <laughs> the, the individuals who make policy within uh, banks and corporations and the individuals who make law, um, they need to be comfortable in the same room together, the rooms, <laughs> the rooms where these decisions are actually made. And so... It's, it's more subtle. It's not that the, the adverti- massive advertising campaign insulates you against all public criticism. It's that your commitment as an executive to that agenda gets you in the room. It's the secret handshake and now we're all buddy-buddy and we can, we can uh, pursue our materialist fantasy together. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that uh, is happening in Australia, of course, is exactly those sort of conversations uh, our political decision makers, including those drawn from the centre right, are in- increasingly in that sort of insider frame. Uh, they they can't, they're elected by uh, or produced by political parties, but political parties aren't what they used to be, says John Howard. No, that's right. John John Howard gave a speech on um, what I'm going to call unrepresentative democracy. Um, uh, I'll, I'll quote him: Modern generations. Do not join organisations, they don't join political parties, they don't join churches and they don't join services clubs or even sporting organisations in the numbers that used to be the case. And one of the implications of that um, is that the liberal, the local branch of the Liberal Party, as he uh, um, saw it in the 1950s, was much more, infinitely more representative of its local community than is the case today. Um, now, this is a big problem for representative democracy in um, John Howard's views um, because if we're building a more and more insular political class that doesn't represent um, the population that they purport to represent, then there's a huge legitimacy problem. There are affiliated problems with, you know, expertise problems. Uh, The government is trying to regulate industries that it doesn't understand um, and so forth. But it does – I think the more fundamental problem is the the democratic legitimacy one. If if we as citizens look at our parliament and don't recognise – in ourselves or in them, any part of ourselves. I think that that creates a problem, doesn't it, Andrew? I do. This is what I do agree with you. I mean, in the sense that, um, you know, that political parties, as they stand, they've become so ossified, such a part of the system, that they're not really responsive to their constituents' needs. And that's part of what drives the alienation of people away. I would add that, um, as, as is traditional on this show, I would mention that 
Scott, I think that was one of your best segues ever. To go from whatever I was <laughs> ranting about to the next segment, I thought it was incredible. I've been but, feeling bad about interrupting all those segues. Yeah, no, no, I, I, had to, I had to do it because, I mean, I don't even know where I was at the end of that last segment. So, But I think, um, you know, the, the, the question here is around, to use what the, the, the left's description of it, is um, representation. The idea that our institutions ought to reflect um, as much as is reasonable to expect um, the population at large. And this is the, 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 the challenge that that presents um, is that it's from there that you go to things like a quota for 50% MPs being women um, and, and, and actively seeking out a, a more diverse mix. Um, and the, the question is whether that like whether you should take positive steps to secure that good, noting, as you say, Chris, that um, one of the advantages of having a, 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 a representative group of people is that you can kind of be more secure in believing that your room isn't leaving out any relevant perspectives that you might want to consider, particularly from a political point of view. Yeah, Renee, I mean, so I, I pulled up some figures from the – these are from um, March 2018, so they probably have changed um, slightly uh, in between now and then. But, um, for example, 10% of parliamentarians are former lawyers compared to 0.7% uh, in the general public. Um, really? Only nearly, that low? I, I know. Thought every, actually, I thought I, everyone had was, a law degree. I was kind of <laughs> – The way things are these days. Everyone has a law no, degree, not everyone 19, 19% yeah, are former – either former party hacks – union officials, political staffers, or lobbyists compared to basically 0% of the population. Um, as composed, so, so those are the overrepresentative groups, as opposed to the people who work in the trades, 0.4% of those in parliament used to work in the trades compared to 13.5% in the general population. Is this a problem? What would you do about it? Of course, this is a problem, but um, I think the identity politics aspect is actually a diversion so that the political parties can go out there and say, we've got a program to bring in more women, we've got a program to bring in more um, ethnically diverse people, but that would somehow um, imply that these people, just by the virtue of being female, are somehow have different thoughts or are completely different in the way that they think. If they're just another party hack, I don't care. I wanted something that actually represents Australia in the diversity of opinion, not the diversity of your skin colour or to, your to be fair, and, 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 and the diversity of interests. Yeah, yeah, diversity but, uh, of interests. To, to, to give, the, to give the, the, like a steel man version of it, the claim is not that, um, that they have some sort of innate ability that is not present in other people, but rather that their lived experience is different from other people. Um, and, and, and it will, will lead to different policy yeah, conclusions. Yeah, that's and I point. think I think yeah. that last bit is a bit of a jump, yeah. actually. But that's the claim. But, but yeah, the but that's the claim. And that, I mean, to a certain extent, we all know that this is true. I do not know what it is like to live as a woman in this society. I actually don't know. Or that. a tradie. The question Andrew, is whether or a that, The question <laughs> is, yeah, or, or, as a tr or as a tradie, or as anyone who's, who's ever had anything other than a stare at a computer screen job. <laughs> um, and and that, that's true. There absolutely are limits to my uh, experience. Uh, the question is whether those limits um, are relevant from a policy point of view. I think, in a, I think at least at the political party level, I think John Howard is right to, to believe that the parties are struggling to come up with responses to public needs um, because perhaps they're only listening to themselves. So there's a, there's a depth. At least in part. That's I wanted true. to ask Renee, though, like, we're assuming that John Howard knows what he's talking about, and, and bless him. I mean, he was a lawyer. Tremendous uh, um, 
Prime Minister. But Renee, the, the assumption there is that we can read a lot into the decline in the membership of political parties. I mean, often it's, 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 it's said to be a measure of the apathy of, of a younger generation. I mean, how, how are people um, uh, in your generation engaging with politics and political parties? Are they completely disconnected or are they, they trying to find other, other means to get involved? Well, to go down to the material level, there's no advantage of being involved in a political party these days. As in back, uh, you go back 20, 30... No cash payments? No, 20, 30 years, you could put your party experience on your resume and it would be something good to an employer because it wasn't this just outright hatred for liberals. While I know a lot of young people right now, if they have anything uh, mentioning that they've done anything with the Liberal Party, they're knocked out of retail jobs. So there is a lot more heat that they cop specifically. Even retail retail jobs? You mean mean like working behind a counter? Uh, No, a a young girl um, who I know uh, involved in Generation Liberty uh, applied for a job at Cotton On. They said she was really good, enjoyed her energy, really liked her. Then they went down to the bottom of her resume and went, oh, you've worked within the Liberal Party. Oh, oh, and then she didn't get a call back. So there's a lot of heat to be copped by joining a public, uh, a political party these days. And not much gain for young people. But I think I might have to address the elephant in the room that there is a specific reason why John Howard was addressing this to a national party think tank. And that is because the nationals are dead in New South Wales for a multiple of um, policies that didn't represent um, their constituency. Like the nationals are not gonna get any seats back. In New South Wales. So at the state election, the Shooters, Farmers and Fishers Party... Are going to take all their seats. Well, they've already, they've already taken some of the last and one here. And controversial though it is, and I'm not going to say where I stand on this, the abortion bill paid a large part because nationals do not... Uh, that people in national seats saw that every national member voted in favour of it and paid a, played a key role in getting it across the line. And that doesn't represent their areas. So there's, there's an interesting devil's advocate position, which I don't think I share, but is an interesting one, and I'm going to associate it with um, former IPA board member Michael Kroger. And his argument, um, I hope I'm not defaming him by saying that, but anyway, um, go through the podcast platform. Um, uh, so his argument has always been, well, we talk about the need for group representation but politics is actually a profession like it's a job you can get skilled at it you can get good at doing it why wouldn't you want people who've spent their um, careers focusing on building up those skills becoming better at doing the functional representation of um, their electorates or, or, um, or or their states why why wouldn't you treat it as a profession I, I well, know yeah but I how uh uh, Kroger and his uh, then friend uh, Peter Costello made similar arguments in this frame, but I think they were talking about people who'd come up through professions in which political action was part of the job. So if you had been a a trade union leader, if you had been a barrister who was used to advocating yeah. in the interests of their clients, uh, if you'd um, heaven forbid you'd worked in a, in a in a think tank where your job was to undertake research and articulate policy positions. I think um, uh, what's closer to representing what they were saying is, you f- or farmers, you know, uh, you know, say in the National Party, uh, the, the farmers, because of the, um, uh, the nature of the collective goods in which they were interested, be it uh, irrigation schemes or back in the day, the marketing um, schemes that the National Party set up, there was that, you know, they used to call, call it agri-politics. Uh, or agro-politics, depending on how involved they were at the time. I think they were talking about those sort of things can produce politicians who are more or less ready-made, 
for Parliament, as opposed to just entering a political system as a staffer um, and and uh, and then yeah, coming the, out the other end the as a senator. Standing, it's the kind of standing structure of the party that is the problem. It's not. It's not the idea that people might make a vocation in politics. It's that making a vocation in politics largely means being on side with the right people in a in an institution that is actually buttressed by legal protections and privileges. Um, I think we, we mentioned this in our um, in submission to the Nationhood Inquiry, that one of the ways that you would go about um, addressing the kind of issue that John Howard seems to be concerned about is by actually reducing some of those privileges and protections at law. I mean, in an ideal democracy, um, no such thing, of course, but Parties should theoretically come and go as coalitions of interests yeah. co coalesce in society. And then that we, we supposedly get some benefit from stability in the, in the party makeup. And this is what justifies you know, public funding for, for parties and things like that. I'm not sure that that's true. I think that the best, the best politicians, the ones who are capable of making it as a vocation, are going to, you know, their local, their local constituents will will support them. Like, the proof is in the pudding, basically, with polit politicians. In the same way that a comedian gets instant feedback on whether his joke was funny or not, <laughs> so do politicians. And good ones survive, and at the moment, bad ones survive as well, and the survival rate is what needs to I, drop. I, I, have to, I have to say that my complete position on this, and this is my honest view, is that we should have sortition and we should be randomly choosing the political class out of a hat basically a <laughs> random selection of politicians that will completely solve the representative and I cannot see how it would be worse than what we have. Renee, last word on this topic. <laughs> well, what wild democratic reform would you prefer? <laughs> what we're seeing is Liberals finally playing the game that Labor have been playing for a very long time and very well. Uh, so if you go back 20, 30 years, there were more Liberals who were small business owners, who were more representative of, of a diverse community of um different professions, but Labor was putting their their talent through union jobs, staffing, and they were training them to be very, very good at politics. And the Liberals started to notice that they were losing because Labor was training their talent and looking after their people, and Liberals weren't. So they just started playing the same game. And you do see it generally results in a lot of staffing, and that's simply because there's not as many think tank jobs or you know, particular barrister jobs that fall into the realm of politics as there are union jobs available for young people involved in labour politics. Yep, um, big questions there. So we have come to that part of the show which is our books and culture segment where our panellists are going to share what they've been reading, watching or listening to. Who would like to kick us off? I'll have a go first. So I've been um, watching the third series, a season of The Crown. This is the... Um, uh, season where Olivia Coleman um, is playing the Queen, taking over from Claire Foy, who was um, uh, the actor of the Queen in the first two seasons. Olivia Coleman is an excellent actor um, uh, who I greatly admire. Um, it's it, a by, shame. By the, by the way, yeah. is, is it like now? In the British system, is it a requirement that you've already played a queen before you can play yeah, the no, queen? Yeah, no, it's it's the <laughs> so Claire it's Foy a, played Anne Boleyn. Yeah, no, it's a professional. And, and Olivia Coleman played Queen you Anne. You get better at opening in the favourite. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's a shame that this season is incredibly dreary. Um, uh, queen Anne, oh sorry, Princess Anne is the only real character with any spark. But the overwhelming impression that I have about this, and uh, I think this is a very anti-monarchy. Um, 
show because the overwhelming impression you get is that they are an extremely wealthy family who are just peripherally connected to world events, just on the edge. So, for instance, um, there's the Aberfan um, uh, tragedy, uh, uh, which was um, a tragedy in Wales of um, a school that was... um, uh, uh, there was an avalanche, a coal avalanche, and, it, and they used this horrifying and powerful story to really consider the Queen's emotional range. That's the most important part of the story, according to the Crown. The moon mission becomes an opportunity for Prince Philip to look at his midlife crisis. You know, the great moon mission, man on the moon. Finally, we get an opportunity to think about Prince Philip's and personal emotions. The British bailout by the US is an opportunity to consider Margaret's career jealousy of her sister. The Greek military junta is an opportunity to consider Philip's absent parents. <laughs> it's that, just sad. Isn't, it, and isn't de- that just complaining that the show is about the royal family rather than about world events? Well, no, no, but but it, it shows... I mean, look, uh, it, it, yes, but the, but the impression <laughs> of the show is that they are very peripheral yeah, show, to all the, show, the interesting things that The show always struck me as anti-monarchy but sort of pro this particular queen in the sense that it, the first two seasons make her out to be very decent. I don't know. I, I, there's a couple of episodes in the earlier seasons where I do think they strike her as like she's not that bright. But, yeah. she's, if, she's, you're, if, you're, if you are monarchist or inclined that way, the show for me, <laughs> no one's going to. Here's a marginal opinion, but the show <laughs> reveals the show reveals moments where the queen could have been a hero and decided not to be. So, for example, the Suez crisis, which I think was in season one of the show, um, she knew how unstable Anthony Eden was when yep. he decided to commit troops, and she could have said, "You're out." She, yeah, <laughs> she could have said, "Look, it's my country, and you're not sending." You're not sending the military to do this. This is mad. You're a lunatic. But she didn't. And so anyway, if you're a monarchist, if you're inclined more to an absolutist view (laughs) of the power, there are moments where you're like, damn, that was a missed opportunity. She really could have reasserted the authority of the crown. Yeah, I, 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 and that just basically her, her role as depicted in the season in the series is to sit back and listen to politicians explain themselves um, and to occasionally meet famous people. And now, now you could say it's a uh, the monarchy's role is a symbolic position to um, epitomise the sovereignty of the um, British Empire, but it sort of it, it doesn't really tell you that story. It just tells you that they're very marginal to all things, and they're also quite and, rich, and, 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 and they it, have a soap opera. Style and it is life. getting worse. In the episode where um, uh, Lord Mountbatten, um, uh, who is uh, Prince Philip's uncle, you know, and and uh, was a figure in his own right in the UK, was supposedly. Um, out of spite, um, interested in fermenting a, a coup uh, and instauring a, a military junta just like they had in Greece. I mean, you know, this this is ahistorical nonsense. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you might have been look, a, look forward to season ten where they do Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, in one of the episodes, of course, Charles becomes a Welsh nationalist or something. <laughs> so he gives these statements about. Um, so it's an, there's an anti-colonial from a from a Welsh nationalist perspective uh, vibe there. After eight hundred years, I oh, have to admit, I watched the first episode and turned turned it off. Um, because I also just felt it got a lot more woke this season, and um, yep. it when she's in the art gallery and talking to Prime Minister Wilson, and she's like, "Are oh, you an admirer of art, Prime Minister Wilson?" He's like, "No, I like numbers. I'm an economist." <laughs> <laughs> that, that seems very inaccurate. Nothing's, nothing's more woke. <laughs> <than an laughs> economist as hero. What? So, what That's have you been true. watching instead, Renee? 
<laughs> ah, so um, right now I'm on a little bit of a tour. Well, I just went to WA to screen um, The Rise of Jordan Peterson, which is a Canadian documentary um, that has not been shown in many mainstream cinemas for reasons that I guess a lot of us can guess. Um, but it's actually a really interesting story. So when the documentary makers went in to make this documentary, they were originally going to make this about Jordan Peterson and um, a, Native Amer- a Native tribe, um, and it was supposed to be about um, carvings and ideas of mythology and all issues around that. And the transgender bill in Canada came through, so the documentary had to kind of change immediately they, they realized they had to address what was going on and also he became he came he became someone who was sometimes in the media sometimes had a little slot on a Q&A like show discussing psychology to a massive massive um, figure and possibly you know possibly the most popular um, public intellectual uh, I particularly like the documentary because it shows him more as a flawed human being it shows his family life, him kind of struggling to come to terms with becoming a political figure, which he always didn't want to become. He he says in the film, I don't want to become the, you know, the political opposite of neo-Marxism. I don't want to be the voice for that. I, I just want to talk about the truth and I want to talk about psychology. So that's particularly interesting. It does get a little bit dragged out towards the end, but overall I do think it's a particularly good documentary. And um, we do have screenings coming up in Melbourne and we actually have um, a Melbourne University screening on Wednesday this week which is pretty much sold out and it's in the Union um, Theatre or the Guild Theatre right at Union House so it's right next to the safe spaces Um, so that's going to be an interesting (laughs) screening. You could well be triggered. You could well be triggered. They've asked for a trigger warning so here it is. They have requested that we consider um, trigger warnings just in Isn't case... Isn't the title a trigger warning? Yeah, yeah, just in right. case someone purchases a ticket, stumbles into the theatre, sits IPA, down yeah. and reali- doesn't realise all that time that this film if contains you, Jordan if you Peterson. Be- if you believe that <laughs> governments should have the ability to mandate the use of gender programs, uh, gender pronouns, you definitely will be triggered by any mention of Jordan oh, I Peterson. Think, uh, the other trigger warning I'm definitely going to put up is trigger warning may contain traces of shellfish. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, I've been uh, reading a book actually over a period of uh, the last few months because I went to the launch of um, Campus Meltdown, the deepening crisis in Australian universities, uh, which is from the great team at Conacourt Publishing. It's a collection of essays put together by the editor William Coleman, who of course is a, um, a professor at ANU and uh, of interest to anyone uh, who is deeply, deeply concerned at the uh, state of our universities, and that is probably nearly everyone listening to this podcast. Uh, Henry Ergus does the forward, just to give it a bit of context. Uh, Henry says, uh, of course, we need institutional autonomy in universities. I challenge that, but he said, you know, assuming that, but he said that institutional autonomy has also made them vulnerable to the pathologies which economists term principal agents problems, particularly when they enjoy secure funding and insulation from competition. Diagnosing these problems is at the heart of many of this book's essays, as indeed it is. It looks at, I guess, the uh, the decline of some of the, the disciplines, the decline of the very notion of a discipline, uh, the fact that the um, the we talk about the idea of a university, 
and about how that is is being lost and, and transformed over time, the impact that has on academics, the rise of the administrative class, what it means for individual disciplines such as, uh, such as literature. There's a terrific uh, essay uh, which I've actually adapted in the process of adapting for the next IPA review from David Martin-Jones on how international relations has both taken over uh, what used to be the study of political science um, at exactly the same time as instead of studying international relations, it's become a version of peace studies, more or less. Um, uh, the mar relentless march of postmodernism through the disciplines as well and well and truly taken over there. So there's uh, 14 different essays there. It, it does uh, canvas some policy ideas, including more competition, allowing um, other institutions to take on a, a greater role, other teaching institutions like colleges to take on a greater role and provide that sort of liberal arts alternative, which I would wholeheartedly support. Um, but it's it's mainly about the diagnosis. Um, but uh, very well done to William Coleman and uh, authors such as um, uh, the great James Allen. Uh, we have Barry Spur, uh, Alison Wolfe, Peter Drake, uh, Ruth Williams, Stephen Chavura. So I recommend that to anyone who wants to know more about what's happening with our universities and is interested in coming up with ideas to um, do something about it. Uh, my pick is, is somewhat different because uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think last time I was on the show I talked about a, an 80, a classic 80s film because um, I've been watching favourites of mine when I'm up late with my baby son um, and this one <laughs> is an absolute classic. This is one I can just, this is just, just great just, for 3am. Just, just recommend just this to everyone screaming to seek child. this out. <laughs> um, it was put out, there was a Criterion uh, DVD put out a few years ago, so there's like a definitive edition of it. It's called Thief. It's from 1981. It's by the great Michael Mann. Um, again, as, as Scott mentioned, not hockey stick Michael Mann, but um, famous auteur. Michael Mann. Um, anyway, but this is like this. This movie is uh, it's got James Khan in the title role as the thief. Um, he's a he's a safe cracker. Um, the film starts with an amazing set piece that was so a bit where he's, he's breaking into a safe that's uh, so realistic that the police uh, insisted that it be recut um, so that you couldn't quite see exactly how he'd done it um, because the one of the consultants on the film was an actual safe cracker. Um, <laughs> and so the film goes from there. But it's this great story that touches on... So 1981, you know, it's that transition period of where, you know, dirty 70s became more hopeful 80s. So this is still... It's the 80s, but it's still that grimy 70s kind of cinema. Um, similar in effect to that uh, to the recent Joker movie, which is, I think, set in the same time. Yep. Um, and anyway, so James Kahn gun safe cracker turns out throughout this this story that like he is state raised institutionalized in and out of prison um he has this dream he's got like a little um uh, like a card that he's made with different images um that shows his dream of a family a home this is so this is his motivation in the film he's trying to put together the life that he didn't have as a kid um and bourgeois, tries, bourgeois aspirations. Yeah, yes, exactly. And and basically what happens is he gets t taken in by this crime boss who ends up ripping him off for the money that they make on this job and he has to choose between, you know, 
being an employee and getting this bourgeois life as an employee or being the kind of loner that he's been trained to be by state institutions. <laughs> and, of course, this being a Michael Mann film, it is ends Is that your reading or is that, is, is that explicit in the film or is this... That's... that's, that's or have you that's worked the, this out No, that's, that's... Well, I've seen this movie a number of times. <laughs> but that's, that's the, the, the implication is he, he tears up his dream, he kicks his girlfriend and their adopted baby out of the house and he says, I'm not, I'm not that man, I'm, I'm this man, this lone wolf, this, I'm nothing inside. This, this, and he talks earlier in the film about how his institutionalisation as a child had sort of killed, he, he thinks it's killed something in him, but you see in the movie that it hasn't really, but this is a mechanism that he's devised um, to cope. And so the film is a really interesting story about, um, dare I say, about atomization, about how his complex interaction with the state in the absence of a family had turned him into this quite dangerous individual, whereas his only aspiration in life was the kind of white picket fence that everyone else has. Um, yeah, Michael Mann film, so it ends with tremendous violence. But it's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's all right. <laughs> but it's, it, it's stylish, score by Tangerine Dream. Um, <laughs> if, you're, if you're a fan of synth music, um, you're a classic Michael Mann nightscapes like... Uh, the night, he explained in an interview once, the night makes the film feel more claustrophobic by putting a lid on all the action. Um, so this like, one... Like this one, Collateral, like which is one time, of his best as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wholeheartedly recommend this. This is an overlooked, genuine classic. This is not a B-movie. This is the real thing. <laughs> Thanks for that, Andrew. You will, of course, find a link to that uh, IMDb uh, notes in our show notes and uh, heartily recommend that. Uh, you've been listening to or watching Looking Forward, um, uh, brought to you by the IPA. If you're not already a member, please do go to ipa.org.au to see how you can join or donate and support this podcast and the many other podcasts and uh, publications that the IPA makes. Uh, I'm Scott Hargroves. I'm editor of the IPA Review. I'd like to say thank you to our co um, co-hosts and panellists, Chris Berg. Thank you, Scott. Renee Gorman. Thank Andrew you. Bushnell. Thanks, Scott. Great to have you. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.